1: Welcome to New Books in Israel Studies. I'm Yaakov Yadgar, the host of the channel. Today we're talking to Professor Ella Shohet about her new book on the Arab Jew, Palestine, and other displacement. Spanning several decades, Ella Shohet's work has introduced conceptual frameworks that fundamentally challenged conventional understandings of Israel, Palestine, Zionism, and the Middle East, focusing on the pivotal figure of the Arab Jew. This book gathers together her most influential political essays, interviews, speeches, testimonies, and memoirs, as well as previously unpublished material.
0: Thank you, Professor yakov Yadgar. It's a pleasure to be here and to meet you, even if only
1: virtually. I believe there is very little need to introduce you and your work. Nevertheless, for those listeners who haven't read your work before, Can you maybe describe the background for this collection of works, how it relates to the wider trajectory of your career as a professor of cultural studies and Middle Eastern studies?
0: Uh, Thank you. Yeah, this is uh, actually at the core of what this book is about, is an effort to bring together two worlds, as it were, that uh, academically have been separated for quite some time. That is Middle Eastern studies emerging out of... uh, the what is called area studies, uh, which is, as we know, a top-down formation that uh, began could be traced back to the school of uh, Orientalist studies, but then emerging in the post-Cold War era with government, especially in the U.S., sponsored uh, funding and giving funding to the study of various regions, including the Middle East. And on the other hand, a very progressive, shall we say, field that emerges out of a post-Marxist perspective Uh, in one place, of course, can be traced back to the Birmingham School, uh, and the emergence of critical approaches that uh, uh, move beyond the uh, um, reductivist, materialist approaches. When I was uh, coming of age, as it were, academically, in the the early 80s, writing about uh, um, both the Middle East and within cultural studies methods, the two realms uh, were completely separated. And as someone working in cultural studies, I felt that uh, the study of the Middle East and its analysis were uh, almost completely marginalized with perhaps one exception now, uh, and that's my framing of the work of Edward Said uh, on Orientalism as a par excellence cultural studies work. But for the most part, um, the Middle East as an object of analysis within cultural studies methods was marginalized. On the other hand, when I was writing at the time my dissertation on Israeli cinema as uh, and basically the Re- Zionist discourse and its representation of Palestine, um, the field of Middle Eastern studies viewed culture in a very problematic way. Uh, Even when culture was studied, it was not studied within cultural studies paradigms. Um, You can say that uh, the most progressive wing of Middle Eastern studies, which was Marxist, tended to view it very suspiciously uh, due to its uh, materialist approaches. Um, On the other hand, you had cultural anthropology, and that field was at the time undergoing almost a metamorphosis with critiques such as Talal Assad and the critique of colonialism uh, and its formation of anthropology. That could be extended of course to the field of uh, uh, geography, history, sociology, etc. So, those two realms uh, uh, is where I was, uh, in a sense, uh, writing my first work. Some of it included not only Israeli cinema, say, on Egyptian cinema or on a uh, question of uh, even. Uh, the Arab Jew and rethinking Jews and Muslims, uh, it does not fall, even when I write about history per se, it of course does not represent the methods of uh, the field of history. Uh, it takes a discursive analysis. And that's really the key method here that is not about, it is about mediation and the kind of uh, uh, reflexivity around question of mediation, which is very much comes within post-structuralist uh, approaches.
1: The book uh, as a whole is a wonderful testimony to the diverse and uh, encompassing nature of your academic work. Maybe we can go over the different parts of the book and discuss at least in general terms the various fields in which you offer your interventions and the nature of this. So the first part of the book is titled The Question of the Arab Jew. Can you explain what this question is and uh, what has been your contribution to posing it in the first place?
0: Yeah, The question of the Arab Jew and why I posed it and why it has historically become a question to begin with uh, has to do with uh, a history of other questions and how the Arab Jew emerges as a question. And it has to do ultimately first with a history of... uh, European antisemitism and the Jew emerging as a question, especially in the nineteenth century, with post Enlightenment discourses and with the formation uh, on the, uh, of uh, nationalist uh, identities in Europe, and how uh, the Jew comes to form and uh, and redefined uh, outside of religious. Uh, self-definitions and moving into a kind of ethno-nationalist identity that often also requires uh, a geographical understanding and the whole project of repatriation and restoration and return ultimately uh, uh, emerges for Jews in at least at, as it forms as a secularist idea emerges in that context so the Jewish question is the response to anti-semitism and the Herzl notion ultimately even as a response to that traumatic site of the Dreyfus trial which I refer to in the introduction to the book uh, is ultimately How ultimately has to be viewed in this particular context. At the same time, there is another question uh, under which or in relation to which my question of the Arab Jew is uh, formulated and why and the how the Arab Jew emerges as a question. Uh, and that is the question of Palestine of course and the question of Palestine itself emerges out of on the one hand uh, the one can see as the the formation of Arabic nationalist movements in re- response to uh, uh, or in relation to colonialist uh, uh, I- an imperialist expansionism in the region, but also uh, in relation to Zionism and uh, the Balfour Declaration, the and ultimately culminating with the partition of Palestine and uh, the Nakba. So the question of Palestine emerges in that also within uh, a history that is related to. Uh, uh, the West and the fall of the Ottoman uh, Empire uh, and and colonialism. That the the Arab Jew emerges in relation to those two questions. Uh, It is a question that is part of modernity. It is not, even though we project and discuss uh, the history, uh, millennial history of Jews within uh, Muslim world, it would be impossible to think about it simply as an old question. It is very much uh, 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 a question that emerges in, a, in relation to those two questions. And so is our dislocation and the displacement, dislocation um, bo- uh, physically, geographically, demographically from Arab Muslim spaces uh, and also displacement in terms of uh, uh, new cultural identity formation. So therefore, uh, the whole rubric of uh, in the book that is called The Question of the Arab Jew is never simply about uh, uh, the Mizrahi place within uh, the state of Israel. It's a larger question for me.
1: So this is uh, intimately tied to the second part, which is titled Between Palestine and Israel, I guess the background to uh, what you discussed now. Can you maybe uh, tell us what the argument is that you're making in this regard?
0: Often the the question uh, of Palestine and the emergence of Israel and Jewish identity as formed within Israel are discussed as, uh, of course, uh, within the conflict uh, what is assumed uh, within this narrative is we, that we're talking about two homogeneous, uh, two homogeneous national identities. Uh, but I am trying to look into the various in- conceptual spaces and historical moments in which those histories overlap. First, uh, not just in terms of anti-Semitism or Judeophobia and Islamophobia, which is the backdrop uh, even to this section, but also, in terms of what are the spaces, for example, in which uh, uh, Palestinian identity uh, is negotiated and experienced and understood also in relation to Zionism and Israel. So, uh, for example, the place of uh, Palestinians within Israel is a great concern to this uh, uh, conceptualization uh, of of what is, I, that identity and cultural practices that are formed and shaped in the spaces in between uh, Israel and Palestine. This is not to suggest that. Uh, uh uh somehow uh it it's a kind of a moment of new hybridity as uh you know as some kind of uh, certain kind of approaches within post-colonial studies celebrating the feta complete of colonial violence by answering it with hybridity I actually in my early work has have tried to complicate the notion of hybridity looking into the ways that perhaps uh, uh, that we have to distinguish between various forms of hybridities uh, including hybridities as uh, uh, as formed within violence. So the, the between is not necessarily just about some kind of a utopian space, but rather also about the various ways in which colonial violence engendered those spaces of occupying multiple belongings. So, But it allows us to move beyond the idea that, for example... Uh, uh, uh you know palestinians who speak hebrew and how they are regarded or palestinian within israel seen simply as traitors or the question of east and west that impacts not only israel but also uh palestinians because of the history of imperialism in the region and the fact that identities have been shaped uh in in within uh the intersection of so-called east and west
1: fascinating um the third part is about cultural politics of the Middle East. Articles in this part deal with media, cinema, gender and so much more. Um, what is the guiding theme of uh, the articles in this section?
0: Uh, yeah, this Come, comes back to the question of, uh, one, the reflexive issue of how to go about studying the notion of Middle Eastern culture as something that is not separated from the political realm. Because one of the ways in which culture and politics in the academy are seen is traditionally, is that politics belongs to the so-called hard fields of political science, sociology, etc., whereas culture is to the so-called soft fields of uh, arts and literature, etc. I mean, uh, let's ignore for a moment, if, if we can, the gendered dimension of this uh tropping. I would uh the for the field of cultural studies, the whole point has been to not see culture as an after or a side effect of, of politics uh, but rather uh, or as a completely uh, separated from politics but to look into how they're uh, mutually imbricated in each other so in in relation to the Middle East I uh, try to this goes back to some early essay in the 90s looking into the ways that um, media, cinema, visual culture, literature have all been shaped by this uh, uh, dynamics, dynamics, but they themselves have also shaped uh, new identities. I mean, my approach, for example, to cinema, whether it's in Egypt or uh, in the context of of, of Zionism, is that cinema is not only, that's not simply, or literature for that matter, they do not only reflect uh, the contextual politics, but they also shape uh, new understanding of identities. So, spectators uh, of, of films are also sh- uh, uh, their identifi- their identifications with particular narratives are uh, are are also sh- uh, are also reflective of this power of cinema. To to to, for example, shape national identities, just as reading particular articles, uh, and this is kind of an argument that has been made about modernity, says in relation to reading newspaper. But the cinema is very and spectatorship, uh, especially in the 20th century, uh, was a powerful tool in the shaping of ideologies and shaping of uh, new identity formations.
1: So the fourth and last part in the book is titled Muslims, Jews, and Diasporic Readings. In a sense, it is the most encompassing uh, part, historically and geographically, at least. Among other things, you put uh, Sephardi history in play with other histories. Which at first may seem remote. Um, can you describe the argument of uh, or the theme of this uh, part of the book?
0: Yeah, there, uh, there are obviously the key element here, uh, Muslim and Jews, uh, and the notion of diasporic readings. Let me explain what diasporic readings in my work has meant. I distinguish between um, there is of course the in the context of Jewish history, uh, quote unquote in. With uppercase age, uh, the notion of nationalism versus the diaspora. Uh, I don't use diaspora in that sense of in, with uh, uppercase D, uh, but rather to speak about multiple diasporas. Every history of this lo- demographic dislocation involved diaspora. So, in that sense, to to simply speak about Jewish history as some kind of a unique experience, uh, for me, has been very problematic. But this is in the Jewish context. So when I speak about multiple diasporas and looking into, say, uh, the history of Arab Jews, Jews in the Middle East, uh, I'm speaking also about the very fact that one can reread the geographies of Middle Eastern Jews as not necessarily their so only uh, diaspora space with that understanding of Jewish history, but rather their dislocation from those spaces as themselves acts and enactment of diasporas. But I And the last part of that is actually moving away from the demographic sociological understanding of diasporas into a larger framing, which is a methodological issue, diasporic readings, meaning that we're looking uh, rather than looking into communities as some kind of um homogeneous identities and rather than looking into simply um uh, uh their narratives their this uh, itineraries of this location we're trying to understand what kind of uh, Allegories, what kind of understanding of identities, projections, and displacement takes place. So, in the case of Arab Jews, my critique over uh, uh, the years has been that. Arab Jews, Middle Eastern Jews have been subjected to a form, subjected to a form of displacements. In other words, their their history within Muslim context and the complex relationality of multiple minorities, for Ahl al-Kitab, for example, and many minorities in the Arab and Muslim world has been taken away, almost kidnapped and taken and projected into uh, the understanding of European Ashkenazi history um, to to reread it and to re- to understand it differently. I, I called it diasporic readings because not because we are diaspora, but rather because it's all about modes of displacement. Where are you taking this narrative, and from where does it begin, and where is it? going to. So uh, this is really the question of diasporic readings is about moving beyond. And also it is about understanding that identities are never formed in in one coherent way. So therefore, displacement are crucial because, uh, for example, the impact of uh, text and ideas moving from one place of another, from one place to another, as they travel along Oceans and continents require that we always understand them not in an na- ethno-nationalist framework, but to use a more contemporary, recent historically term, the transnational or trans-regional, because there is constant movement of ideas from one place to another. This is something we also developed in my uh, book with Robert Stem, Race, Race in Translation. Now, how does it relate to the Sephardic? So, for example, the notion of Sephardic Moorish Atlantic uh, uh, that I in some of the essays or the old essays that I've written in relation to the in, uh published in 1992 Rethinking Jews and Muslims and which I later developed into an essay called Columbus, Palestine and Arab Jews all those ideas are about looking into the ways that um, as one example is the fact that the so-called uh, discovery of the Americas in 1492, and the expulsion of Jews and Muslims in 1492 have been studied as completely two separate events, uh, uh, historically, materially, as well as uh, conceptually. But uh, in 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 this work, uh, the effort is to actually link them, not only materially, which uh, some historians. Um, uh, have done actually to look how the dispossessed uh, how the property taken from muslim and jews helped finance the columbus voyages but also looking into the ways uh, and that was crucial for me how reconquista ideology about jews and muslim uh, about the other the limpieza de sangre the cleansing of the blood of the impure muslim and jew all of that This type of diabolization traveled to the Americas with a kind of a ready-made apparatus now being implemented, first in relation to the indigenous people of the Americas, and then in relation to the enslaved African within this kind of conquista ideologies. And then more than that, I look into how, uh, in the case, say, even of Latin American intellectual, they've been uh, obsessed actually with, whether negatively or positively, um, uh, in and also in another essay with Robert Stam on tropical Orientalism, we also look into the ways, uh, for example, uh, f- the work of the anthropologist Freire uh, lo- even romanticizes the Sephardi and the Moor in terms of the history of Latin America. So they take the negative, the negative aspect of the limpiezas de sangre, of the impure blood, uh, uh, and the rejection of that Moorish Sephardic history in relation to Iberia, and. Even romanticize it. So they're very complex ideas. And this is here is a diasporic reading. You see, it has nothing to do simply with the bodies of Muslims and Sephardis traveling to the Americas. It has to do in the way the ideas about Moors and Sephardi are being incorporated and understood in other spaces.
1: So uh, methodologically and epistemologically, As you already noted, your work is actually a perfect example, I would say, of the field of cultural studies as a whole. It it tends to hold uh, an interdisciplinary stance between so many different uh, fields, uh, uh, politics, sociology, linguistic, uh, uh, anthropology, and and so much more. So uh, maybe you can uh, say a few words about how you see the role of cultural studies and your work in particular in this wider academic discourse?
0: Let me start. We'll go back to our early question, uh, in a sense, in relation to the field of cultural studies, because it, it, the idea of going, moving beyond the way disciplines emerge uh, in the academia has been crucial precisely because um, the while the deep research of a particular discipline helps us see something, it also sometimes blinds us to some other uh, elements in a particular analysis now this is not to say that uh, interdisciplinary dialogue is will somehow represent everything but I think it helps us uh, it gives us a more flexible uh, way of moving beyond the particular uh, discipline uh, to to Provide hopefully other insights, uh, and this is uh, the way that um, I believe we can uh, we can uh, or, you know in terms of uh, the if we look at regions for example and area studies, which is you know, the field of Middle East studies can be divided into history, geography, political science, sociology, etc. Um, uh, but that, with all the the major work that has been done there, we can use this work. This is not about rejecting uh, work, but this is about bringing into dialogue those various disciplines and moving in between them. So if we take the central question of this book, The Arab Jew, uh, if we only regard the question of sociology in relation to Mizrahim, for example, then we're thinking simply about uh, and uh, the Mizrahim as an internal question within uh, Israel and the nationalist idea and that this is an internal gap problem, for example. But if we're taking a cross-border approach that also looks historically that into the history of the dislocation of Arab Jews, um, we begin to understand uh, the, uh and go beyond the 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 criminalization discourse for example that the, and the orientalist discourse that all those horrible uh, uh, criminality that uh, inflicted uh arab jews or mizrahim in israel has to do with uh, their uh uh, Arab countries of Middle Eastern countries of origins. If we look historically at what happened to the Arab Jews, say, then we have to discuss the question of trauma of dislocation suddenly. So we move into a whole other field. Uh, maybe we borrow from psychoanalysis. Um, and actually, I, I do, uh, the first article in the book, uh Sephardim uh, in Israel, Zionism from the standpoint of the Jewish victims, uh, I think like the part that deals with ordeals of civility and the internalization of, uh, of racist discourses that Mizrahim have, uh, have undergone and, uh, That actually here is an example that challenges some of the disciplinary understanding, say, sociology, the problem of the gap, as if it's only uh, and within Marxist analysis, it would be a materialist understanding uh, coming out of dependency theory, for example. But if we take also, in addition to that understanding of colonialist history and racialist formation and how that actually affected the psyche of the colonized, then we—that was important for me—to take that approach and and try to understand the so-called problem of the gap, not as a, some kind of a uh, uh, just in relation to materialist, but rather as a trauma as that was internalized and the self, the ongoing self-rejection in the Arab. And I believe that this kind of discourse and analysis, which was interdisciplinary to begin with, opened up a new. Uh, a, a new possibility of seeing it—the our history in a very different way.
1: A major concept in this regard, well, throughout the book, is identity. You dive into a critique of what we would usually call the politics of identity, and you warn us against essentialism. Can you explain how you see the very concept of identity and how you suggest we avoid essentialism?
0: I think the anxiety around identity, let me uh, uh, put it a little bit in the larger intellectual discussion. I think one of the uh, anxieties around uh, uh, the discussion of identity, especially when coming from the left, uh, uh, um, has been uh, the fear that identities are seen as uh, coming, say, from um, Marxist analysis that sees it as something that... Um, You know, uh, it's almost something that is impossible to really um, analyze uh, or it is, uh, you know, can only be understood in materialist terms. But I think post-Marxist analysis and cultural studies move beyond that. Uh, There is... Another approach, for example, uh, which was sort of like the reason ultimately why we started writing the book "Race and Translation," uh, Pierre Bourdieu and Louis Wacquant, for example, attacked um, multiculturalism and identity as um, kind of a uh, almost called it calling it ethnic poison, and that uh, that comes out of a certain kind of republican model. Uh, of uh, where uh, and the Enlightenment ideals as universalist ideals are seen threatened by the notion of identity, which is perceived as something particular. So it's, now we're falling into another uh, historical intellectual debate, the particular versus the universal. Uh, so to, to articulate, for example, uh, the question of Arab Jew and as a, a part of an identity debate, that challenges the dichotomy of the universal versus the particular um, had to be understood not as in any kind of reductionist way it's not an essentialist argument, even in my early early work i uh, I'm very careful saying the end of the Essay on uh, a Sephardim in Israel to say that this is not an essentialist argument about uh, uh, or some kind of uh, I, uh, uh, positive negative that uh, you know Europeans are bad and Middle Easterners are good or Mizrahim are uh, are good and Ashkenazim are bad. Um, you know this argument uh, often when it uh, when we people like intellectuals like us are being criticized it's thrown back at us as if. Uh, and uh, I'm not saying that in the history of anti-colonial or anti-racist discourse that uh, uh, essentialist uh, argument haven't been made. You can find argument that say, um, even uh, taking, say, Eurocentric understanding that we're essentialist about climate theories, for example, that the Northern is uh, rational, the Northern part of Europe is rational, the Southern part of Europe is irrational, and that actually applied in within colonial discourse. That argument we can find in uh, uh, has been reversed uh, to suggest that the South has been more emotional, etc. But it's exactly the kind of argument that I also, in our book also on thinking Eurocentrism, we criticize this kind of uh, essentialism in reverse. And, and, and so in my work in my I'm very careful uh, trying to make this is this is a political argument about uh, first of all about structures of oppression but it is also about the way identities are formed within oppressive spaces also as resistant to it. So it's a kind of a dynamic process that has to be understood and even if you are part say of the hegemony, if you develop a uh, sort of like an alternative consciousness as it were, um, the, 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 the notion of coalitionary uh, the uh, coalitionary um, spaces uh, are important in that you that means that someone like my, that's uh, that it developed a different kind of identification so one has to make the distinction between identity as uh, as something you are born into Into identification or affiliation, and this is already a discourse from the 90s that was critical of essentialist understanding. And to that extent, I, for example, I it was important to me. This was in the 90s. I write it. I write about Arab Jew as a relational. uh, We must develop relational understanding of this history and identity. So even and also as a method of analysis. So to articulate even the Arab Jew, it's not just a fixed notion of identity, it is mobile, it's relational. And therefore, when we speak about identity, we have to be very careful. At the same time, I don't reject this as a category, analytical category or a historical category. I just, it's a signifier that uh, is is a shifting signifier, let's put it this way.
1: So let's go back, or maybe not really, to the Israeli case. Um, Your work clearly puts what others may see as an internal Israeli issue inside a much wider uh, framework um, or maybe frameworks in the plural. Uh, What perspectives is the Mizrahi story put into? What other questions are posed vis-a-vis this story?
0: I think in the early work, uh, you can see it uh, in some of the essays included here. uh, already in the book Israeli Cinema, I was very much concerned um, with the way the the most critical discourse at the time in terms of uh, academic uh, or public discourse uh, was about the discrimination of, of uh, Mizrahim or Sephardim uh, at the time. And it was seen as, or the problem of the gap Ayat HaPaar, as it was seen at the time, was an internal issue. On the outside, as it were, the external issue was the question of Palestine, was the problem with the Arabs, as it were, right? And the two questions were completely separate, you know, both in the public understanding of how to talk about the experiences that Jews from Middle East were undergoing within Israel, uh, and then the uh, other issue, which was the Arab problem. Um, so I think my work had tried to this what I call cross border analysis cross border perspective try to un- dismantle that um that boundary the, the in terms of how we grasp the history of the problem to begin with which uh and that's why in the introduction to the book I continue I believe to reframe it in a way to suggest that you know those two issues are formed together they're shaped together and it almost would be myopic to only look at the mizrahi question as as if it only began once we uh, arrived to israel and therefore it's somehow unrelated even within the state of israel the way you can say it has been used uh, abused uh, uh, for particular political ends the Mizrahi issue is always there uh, as related directly or indirectly to uh, uh, to the Palestinian question, whether economically and uh, politically, but also, of course, what I try to emphasize I- historically. So this, therefore, the internal-external paradigm, the internal was uh, we study in the field of sociology uh uh the beayata or uh uh but for me the notion of uh not even discrimination but racial formation were important to understand it within the larger colonial perspective. So even already if you frame it within colonial discourse you move it between some kind of an internal Jewish problem that that was shaped within Israel into a larger question in which you look into Zionist discourse as itself borrowing and implementing uh, ideas that were shaped by not only ethno-nationalism in Europe, but also Eurocentric colonialist understanding of of, uh, identity. So, on the other hand, you had anthropology. Anthropology, say, of studying uh, Jews, whether uh, Yemeni Jews uh, or Persian Jews, uh, with their uh, uh, habits and uh, rituals, etc. To to th- the critique of that uh, has been very important to move us as an object of exoticization. So. Uh, and just as it was important for me to move, to remove us from histor- historiography of what I call pogromization, that we always see us within tracing the thought from pogrom to pogrom, like there was no cultural production, no uh, uh, complex experiences. uh, And our history is reduced into contemporary museum. If you take any kind of museum about our history or any kind of those kind of uh, persecution models. So in every field, you had a hegemonic models or hegemonic narrative. uh, But there were some uh, uh, if it was history of persecution, it was uh, a redemptive narrative and the Telos was the state of Israel. So there how you see the division between the external and internal works in every field. So by bringing all this field together, uh, I was trying to dismantle uh, also this uh, nationalist notion that we only understand the Mizrahi within uh, as, uh, within the state of Israel, and unrelated to uh, our, our previous history and even to our future.
1: Yes, uh, it's interesting to note how the Israeli um, Ministry of Education has been trying to appropriate uh, the Mizrahi narrative exactly through a, a, a history of persecution and uh, a victimization narrative, uh, just to know that. Now, uh, the book... The book carries a very personal tone. It even carries the images of your parents' Iraqi travel documents. So maybe you can say a few words about uh, this professional trajectory, how it corresponds with your personal history.
0: Yeah, thank you. You know, I never thought of writing in the first person about the subject. In the eighties, I did not. I may have written for myself, or uh, but not in a public way. Something happened, and that was the Gulf War, uh, uh, the uh, the Gulf, the, what is called the first Gulf War, <laughs> and um, in where all the places uh, that. Uh, my personal biography, um, the places that have formed me, Iraq, uh, Israel, Palestine, and the U.S. uh, were involved in a war. And, um, you know, those things affect you. They can be, you know, moments that are, um, uh, and that actually uh, probably I would have been Resistance. I, I I was suspicious even of autobiographical narrative intellectually, uh, and I think that uh, in in some ways I was asked also. I mean, I didn't initiate it. I was actually asked by people who knew me to to write an article about that, and that's how uh, dislocated identities, reflection of an Arab Jew, came about. Uh, but I also felt that this would be probably a way of um, translated translating, as it were, my previous writing into a more accessible uh, narrative. Um, And sure enough, actually, this article has been, you know, this pre-internet was circulating uh, quite a bit and resonated with a lot of people, not only from the Middle East, but other people who experienced displacement and dislocations. And, uh, that actually over the years, uh, encouraged me as I was being invited to speak more about also the autobiographical element to write more about this subject because it d- did become a more, uh, did become, uh, a more accessible vehicle, uh, to communicate with wider, uh, with audiences, um, uh, that may have not or could not or did not want to read more academic uh, text. And in that context, I, it actually freed me, as it were, uh, to write uh, somewhat differently about uh, uh, the history. And I, I'm actually so happy to see today you see so many people, even of a y- younger generation uh, and older generation, um, you know, looking into this history and supplying us and bringing us more uh, of their own narratives, which I think enriches us uh, with a fuller understanding of the traumatic experiences. You know, when I was writing those sentences about turning off the radio to the sound of Um Kulthum, or that, uh, you know, members of the family who were arrested for being mistaken for Palestinians, I knew it was not just my experiences. But I think once you give them voice, now you know that many people are writing about it, and then one can read it sociologically, uh, and then understand that there was a ph- phenomenon that was suppressed. So, um, you know, so those essays, I believe, were a trigger to to everything that was suppressed and was taboo, and that's why, uh, you know, it, you know, the previous work is called also Taboo Memories, the Asporic Voices, precisely because to articulate what was forbidden one, to speak about those emotional experiences, B, to speak about past memories, uh, you know, because we're supposed only to remember persecution. So I think this wave of nostalgia that we're seeing also now has a political, uh, uh, intellectual uh, emotional cathartic function uh, uh, to allow us to reshape our identity. Again, I don't believe that identity is only what we're born; to. it's also what we make out of it. And, and so, I believe autobiographical narratives have this kind of important uh, public role.
1: I must add: I mean, this uh, liberating effect is mutual. I can, you know, I can think of many stories of people who were audiences of these narratives, personal narratives, and all of a sudden were able to reflect upon their own histories, their own identities, through the legitimation that this voice allowed them. So uh, it was doubly liberating in a sense. Um, I think we've taken uh, too much of your time, so maybe you can tell us in closing what project or projects you're currently working on. I remember reading recently your work on uh, Judeo-Arabic,
0: yeah, uh, I'm not a linguist, so I. Uh, but my interest in, in what I call the question of Judeo-Arabic and why is in relation to my other interests, which was, has been the question of the Arab Jew and why is it we come back to our, the beginning of our conversation, why is it the question at all? Uh, it is a question because like many other issues, just like the invention of the Mizrahim, there is an aspect of invention, invention in the sense not simply of something that did not exist before and it comes into being with uh, shifting political realities, but also as concept that redefine how we view um, history, identity, and even languages. So language, the the way I'm reflecting on the notion of what is the language called uh, Judeo-Arabic is both historically, but also as a trope to understand the shifting definition of identity and what is permitted and what is forbidden uh, in that narrative. One, because um, uh, I'm really thinking about a linguistic imaginary, which is, the fact, I'm, I'm giving example both from the religious liturgical, um, uh, liturgical spaces, sites as it were, but also from secular sites, uh, where the notion of Judeo-Arabic was not something that was used even in the specific dialects when it is relevant of, uh, of, uh, Jews who spoke Arabic. You know, sometimes there were separate dialects, uh, uh, but they were not necessarily seen. But it's not necessarily to when. When does this idea of Judeo Arabic emerges? This is really important to me. I'm kind of obsessed sometimes with this question of beginning beginnings, just as I ask in some of the essays, When does Orientalism begin? Only in the post Enlightenment era, or perhaps in 1492, with uh, uh, the expulsion of Jews and Muslims. The same question I pose. I'm, I'm, I'm not a, a historian and I haven't done a full research to discover when exactly. But I do notice that sometimes in that uh, encounter, even before the uh, uh, Israel, when uh, European Jewish or especially Zionist uh, uh, um, uh, agents or activists or teachers were coming to the Arab world, that uh, beginning to define uh Dialects spoken by Jews as Judeo Arabic. Sometimes it is used to suggest because uh, uh, Jews also used for liturgical purposes Hebrew Hebrew script, even though the language was Arabic. But I actually look around, and and again, from all those spaces, there was first of all there was a. He- one language, especially in terms of the spoken field, that uh, uh, that was common to the Jews in Arab spaces. Uh, Jews, like other Arabs of various uh, groups and regions and ethnicities and religions, were also bound by specific context in what they spoke. So I take uh, the, the dialect that I grew up and spoke at home as my native dialect, the Baghdadi dialect, and, uh, and even though I look at the work uh, of some uh, uh, linguists uh, like uh, uh, Blau uh, and, uh, you know, I reflect on this work and say, okay, this narrative that suggests that Jews spoke such a dialect that was so different from the Muslims and they could not understand each other uh, actually is highly problematic. Well, first of all, the Jews of Iraq, uh, the Jews, sorry, the Jews of Baghdad spoke at uh, what is called Moslawi dialect, that is closer, uh, in which also Muslim of Mosul spoke. Uh, so the Muslim of Mosul spoke a dialect closer to the Jew of Baghdad than the Jew of Baghdad spoke. Uh, then the Muslim of uh, sorry the Muslim of Mosul spoke to the Muslim of Baghdad. The same thing: the Jew of Baghdad spoke uh, a dialect closer to the Muslim of Baghdad than to the Jew of Marrakesh. So. Uh, you know, so one has to put it again. This is the relational method that we talk about, um, and look into this way in which what is the purpose of, um, you know, separating. And my really my major critique is the way that the hyphen in the notion of Judeo Arabic is actually a separating hyphen in uh, that uh, separate uh, Judeo Arabic, even though we the word Arabic exists, it's ultimately, in in the phrase, ultimately it is about separating it. uh, There is become an object of an it that is separate from the language of Arabic. But Arabic is multiple. It's uh, uh, heteroglossic uh, throughout the Arab world. Why is it that uh, only dialect spoken one Jews, and not always, by the way, they're separate dialects, depends on the region and place, uh, they're separated. And that's actually um, where I see the Judeo-Arabic emerging as part of a uh, nationalist understanding of Jewishness.
1: Fascinating. Much to look forward to. Professor Shahat. Uh, thank you for being on the show today and best of luck with the publication of the new book.
0: Thank you very much.